I kind of see Sunset as kind of the sunset of his writing career because nothing he's written since then has really had much impact. This is the Gospel of Musical Theatre, a priestly look at some of your favorite musicals with your hosts, Cathedral Deans and Musical Theatre Queens, Nathan LaRude and Peter Elliott. This is the Gospel of Musical Theatre, and it is probably our last conversation about the work of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Uh, so Peter here in Vancouver, Nathan's in Portland, and we're thrilled to welcome a guest today, star of stage, screen, and television, a Vancouver-based actor, Ian Farthing. Ian uh, was is a professional actor, trained uh, in the UK at uh, the University of Birmingham, and then more recently, or following that, at Guildhall School of Acting. Worked in London for 10 years, back in Canada on the West Coast. Worked in a number of theatre companies within Vancouver. And from 2005 to 2014, Artistic Director of the St. Lawrence Shakespeare Festival, which uh, welcomed the first ever tour in Canada, the Globe Theatre. So actor and director, friend and acquaintance of many years. Uh, Ian was actually in when we did Sondheim at the Cathedral in September a few years ago, where we bravely did all of the works of Stephen Sondheim in concert version, at least favorite songs over three successive nights. Ian was part of that production and has had a kind of ongoing uh, acquaintance with the role of Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music, which he'll be playing again this summer. But welcome, Ian. It's good to have you here. Thanks for joining us. Ian knows uh, Starlight Express, which he'll say more about, and Sunset Boulevard. Uh, I know not a whole lot about either of the show, so I'm even more happy that you've joined us today. And Nathan is, of course, in Portland. And good morning, or hello, Nathan, whatever time it is. Good morning. Good morning, Ian. It's great, hello, to have you on the, great to have you with us. It's a thrill to be here. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about how you became an actor and the roles that the role that musical theater maybe played in kind of your early formation. Sure. Uh, as a teenager, I it's one of those things I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And then at school, we were in a play and we did this comedy by a British writer called Alan Akebourne. And I was on stage and the things we were doing on stage were making the audience laugh so much. That was such a good feeling. I thought, oh, I like this uh, feeling. I can do this professionally. And I went to see a lot of stuff in, in England and I saw Les Miserables and I was just blown away by that. That was the original West End company. And uh, that kind of solidified my passion to get involved in theater. And then because it was a crazy profession to go into, I had no family background of, of that, nobody involved in theater. So I kind of did a deal with God. I kind of laid a fleece. I said, okay, God, this is a stupid idea. It's insecure. I'm not going to, it's just a silly idea as a career path. So if this is what you want me to do, because I was feeling that there was a kind of a calling, Mm -hmm. uh, if this is what you want me to do, this is what I want to happen, which is the little, you know, 
bold, I guess. Um, terrible I wanna, theology, but I understand. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, there's there's biblical precedent, right? So <laughs> well, true. There is. Um, uh, I want to get into one of the top five theater programs at university. After that, I want to get into one of the top 10 uh, grad schools for acting. After that, I want to get an agent and my equity card within a year of leaving school. If all of that happens, I will take that as a sign that <laughs> this is something I should be pursuing. And lo and behold, it did all happen. And uh, <laughs> here I am. Here you are. Decades later. I won't say how many years. <laughs> Still here. Good times and bum times. I've seen them all. And- <laughs> My dear, I'm still, still here. here. Yeah. So theater is vocational for you. Sounds like this is it, this is a, a place of of call for you. It is. Yeah. And I did have a period uh, where I wasn't sure if that's what I should be doing when I was in the UK and in London. You know, it was tough. Yeah. It was tough, and I was beginning to feel, okay, is this my calling? Is this uh-huh. what I should be doing? And I thought to myself, you know, perhaps you're given a calling, perhaps it's not for life. Perhaps your calling mm. is just for a, a period of your life. And so I decided to take a year out and do something completely different. Uh, at the time, I was working in a box office in the West End as my Joe job. So I thought, I've got to get out of London, get uh, away from the world of theater. My friends were in theater. My work was theater. Where shall I go? Get out of London. I've got my Canadian passport. Why don't I go back to Canada? Um, where should I go in Canada? Only place I know is Vancouver. So I landed in back in Vancouver in March 1999. And within three weeks of landing, I knew I wasn't going back to the UK. And by the end of the year, I'd got a job working as a production coordinator in a studio here that uh, dubs animation. And by the end of that year, I knew that I wasn't done with theater yet either. Yeah. And yeah. so, yeah, so I'm still here. It was just time for a new chapter. Yeah, exactly. And Captain Von Trapp, if I recall, <laughs> when you were in the the Toronto production, which I think was a uh, was that was that it was, the Andrew Lloyd Webber? It was production? produced by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Based on the TV program, uh, how do you to, solve to find the problem, Maria? Like Maria? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you were the understudy for Captain Von Trapp, but you played sort of a variety of roles, kind of swing, including being a nun. Exactly. Yes. Uh, you know, it was a large company. There were 50 of us in the company, which was a great experience. And they wanted a lot of nuns on stage. And it's a big stage, the Princess of Wales. So you can get away with having a few of the guys dressed up as nuns in the in the chorus there. Do, for, do, you, also, do you also then turn around then and play a Nazi? I wasn't a Nazi. No, oh, I was no. I was part of the the trio uh the play in the concert at the okay. end there so and we were dance dancing at the at the party at the end of that sure yeah, yeah socialites sure. and things like that your autobiography then can't be titled from nun to nazi that's uh or from <laughs> nazi to nun we'll have i to... have played a few nazis in my time which is somebody who is half jewish always tickles tickles feels me a little yeah the irony of that <laughs> the irony of that maybe maybe that's the ultimate triumph over the nazis is <laughs> yeah. all these years later it was fun fun the ma- the male nuns we we gave ourselves nicknames. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a one of the guys was six foot four, so he was called Sister Mary Skyscraper. <laughs> and then one of the guys was kind of kind of uh, chunky and uh, well built, so he was Sister Mary Linebacker. <laughs> and then uh, I was uh, I have a great 
love of chocolate. So I was Sister Mary Needham Chocolatum. <laughs> <laughs> and you're playing Captain Von Trapp this summer, 2023 at Rosebud. That's correct. Yes. Uh, although I, I went on a few times in Toronto, I got to play the role again at Shimanus Theater a couple right. of years ago. And Rosebud and Shimanus are have very close connections. They were f- uh, founded by the same people. So uh, although well, me being in this Rosebud production has got nothing to do with the Shimanus one, that just kind of came out of the blue. So, and, and what is interesting and kind of relevant to this conversation is both those theater companies grew out of Christian performing artists uh, and saw theater uh, really from the evangelical community, um, saw theater as a way to reach people with with a message really with the gospel, both have shifted from that a little bit. They have a broader, broader mandate now, broad, broader purpose statement. But it's interesting that in this part of British Columbia, the two of them plus Pacific Theater, with whom you've worked for a number of years, all have roots in evangelical Christianity and this kind of intersection of evangelical Christianity and the performing arts, which isn't always an easy uh, an easy relationship to navigate, especially around issues of uh, LGBTQ uh, identity and so forth, because that was problematic for a number of years, I think, within all those companies. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, I'm old enough, although I still don't feel like I'm old, but I'm old enough to remember where there was still a sense in the church that to work in theater was kind of yeah. not kosher to yeah. mix my religious metaphors actors um, actors were suspect yeah yeah uh yeah. to work in the theater you know i wouldn't say go so far as to say it was a thing of the devil but uh yeah. it was not it was treated with suspicion shall uh-huh. we say uh-huh. um it was okay if you were doing a little skit in church right to promote a message but uh, to actually have a career was was still tricky when i was in england i was lucky enough to get involved with something called the art center group which was formed by a number of people back in the early 70s one of the founders was the singer cliff richard right. and uh it was created to support christians professionally working in the arts and media and as a group, I found that extraordinarily useful in trying to mesh my faith with my art and to say, yes, you can be a Christian and an actor. You can be a Christian and an artist. You can be a Christian and a DJ, you know. And I also made a huge number of connections there with, with other people of faith who work as artists across the spectrum. And they're very dear friends today. Oh. Amazing. So you were, if I've got the story right, because I think we should probably talk about these two plays, uh, right. which we've been talking about as Starlight and Sunset, uh, Starlight Express and Sunset Boulevard. You were in a, an usher in a theater where Starlight <laughs> Express was playing and you have seen this show how many times uh it's got to be over 300 times yeah when i first got out of grad school i was in london i needed a job and uh a friend of mine was the house manager at uh the apollo victoria theater and i went to him and said do you need any ushers he said sure so there i was and uh so i did see it many 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 times and uh 
it's not the greatest musical in the world. Yeah. But I grew quite to have quite an affection for the show <laughs> over so that time. It's, uh, it brings together a whole lot of Andrew Lloyd Webber's hobbies, interests. So trains, number one. He'd been thinking about a project on Thomas the Tank Engine for a number of years and finally came up with this idea of Starlight Express, which is performed by actors, all of whom are on roller skates, if I've got it right, and who are acting as trains, um, sort of in a competition, uh, a race, if you like. And I was, uh, as we were doing the, as I was doing some research for all of this, and trying to get a, a list of the songs from Starlight Express, it, it, there are many lists of songs from Starlight Express, depending on which production it's been. There's it's been varied around. Um, different places get different different songs, all of which have to do with reaching a destination, getting there first. I mean, is it heaven they're going to metaphorically? Uh, but it's rock and roll about trains, Victorianas in some kind of ways. On, on roller stage, skates. On roller skates. Have I got it? I mean, I've never seen the thing. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, the the, the setup <laughs> is it's a little a little boy is has a train set and he has a dream. He's kind of like the controller. It's all in his imagination, mm -hmm. this this race. It's him playing with his toy trains and they all come to life and uh and have this this race and these relationships. And uh it, it yeah, it's it's fun. Interestingly, it wasn't originally going to be on roller skates. It was the set designer who came up with that idea when they were in pre-production, going, ah, we gotta get some way of showing how they're they're moving and how they're racing what about if we do it on roller skates and at the time that was a huge problem because you had a lot of dancers in london but who couldn't skate yeah. or there were a lot of they used to go to uh, the choreographer went to some of like the roller skate parks around london to try and scout for talent mm -hmm. um oh in, another interesting connection for me was the uh, choreographer for style express was arlene phillips who was our choreographer for the sound of music in toronto oh so we got to i actually got to work with her so uh, that was a kind of a cool nice but so yeah they had a lot of uh problems trying to find a cast who could skate and dance and sing 
it's quite a tall order. And I think before The Lion King came along, it was also the the, sh the show that had the history for the most uh, people off sick through injuries. Oh wow! In the history of theater, sure. That's that's a that adds a whole other element into the danger of performing live when you're on roller skates. I imagine, and also increases. adds to the excitement for the audience. Sure, you know, yeah, yeah, There's something thrilling about seeing these bodies skating dancing around and the theater and around the auditorium oh interesting so it know? was they were like kind of like surround like they used the space in a whole different kind of way yeah you were yeah, sort of the, 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 they built a racetrack in the theater wow. so it wasn't just on stage there there was a, a track that came around the front of the balcony mm -hmm. so wow. if you were upstairs you had people coming right past you um and then there was a, another little racetrack that went around in in and around the the orchestra too when they went to Germany in the city of Bochum, they actually built the theater specifically for this show. Mm. So it, the racetrack was bigger and faster than anywhere else in the world. Uh, one of my best friends was the musical director on that production. So I went over to see it there too. And holy cow, they, they really sped around those tracks. It was, huh. it's exciting to watch. Yeah. And that's, and that holds the Guinness book of world records record, I think, for the longest running production anywhere in the world. Is that right? The, the, the German production of Starlight Express has been running for longer than anything. Um, Do I have that right? I Maybe think I'm... that's I think that's right. Because it was or it did. Right I don't know the longest it production of Starlight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it was running right up until the pandemic, if I've got my my facts right. Um, yeah. Just kept going and kept going. And only the uh, <laughs> only only the pandemic the COVID-19 pandemic stopped it actually. Yeah. So opened 1984 at the Apollo Victoria Theater where Ian was the usher, directed by Trevor Nunn. So Trevor Nunn's back again, having directed Cats. And this time it's roller skates, not Cats. And then uh, other productions played on Broadway from 1987 to 1989, 761 performances. Yes, here's the piece about Bauckham. As of 2021, the new reimagined production was still running and has been seen by more than 17 million people. Yeah, that's I think that's the world record. It's the most right. it's the most people to have seen a show inside a single theater. Uh -huh. Um, uh -huh. So many people have been crammed. I guess I mean, it's probably a huge theater so that they're, they're probably able to do that uh, yeah. purpose built theater that yeah has the record to it. So there you go. The Germans love Starlight Express, apparently. They do. Well, they love their trains, don't they? They love their trains. I mean, yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. And it was in English, obviously, in Germany? Or no, it, in it German? was in German. In German, yeah. Okay. What was really interesting is that uh, they had they had a, an international company coming to Bochum for it, and uh, they all had to learn German, and uh, the dialect coach was so strict. And I don't think I've ever heard a production where I crystal clear heard every single word that was being sung hmm. it was so precise i guess because german has a lot of consonants so sure, if you get sure. those really clear but but i was kind of impressed yeah interesting i don't really i i know i think i think the the, the great romance ballad in starlight express is only you only you that's i think that is the only song i know from starlight express right. if, are, are there are there titles the title track starlight express Answer me, yes. Starlight Express, answer me, yes. I don't want you to go. 
want you to take me away But bring me back before daylight And in the time between Take me to everywhere But don't abandon me there Just want to say I've been I believe in you completely Though I may be dreaming You know, Andrew Lloyd Webber had a, a history of releasing a song from the musical in yeah. as, a, as a single, uh, often before the show even opened. And that didn't happen here with, with Starlight for mm-hmm. whatever reason. I, it, you know, who knows? Who knows? He didn't he didn't plant the plant the music in the collective consciousness before the show opens, which is a really effective way to get wild advanced ticket sales. When yeah, yeah, yeah. The music. Yeah. Um, yeah. When it opened on Broadway, it opened in the same year as Les Mis opened on Broadway. And they both, uh, interestingly, had a little record of their own. Les Mis broke the record for the highest advanced sales ever of 11 million. Starlight broke the record for the most expensive show in terms of costs ever, which was 8 million. And wow. uh, it it didn't have the advance that uh, uh-huh. so that. so must have lost it must have lost money then that's a that's a hugely expensive show to mount it, it is yeah, yeah 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 um and I you know and I think it the it's interesting to contrast those two shows because I think that you know Les Mis at that time was kind of the harbinger of a, a new way of doing musicals mm-hmm. and Starlight Express was you know kind of the end of Lloyd Webber's pastiche yeah. Run yeah, shows. It's kind from, of from Joseph and Superstar. I was say, and Cats. Yeah, kind and of it, doing spoof ways, music. It's it's even it's so obviously pastiche because you have your country music song, you have your rock and roll song, you have your your hip hop song, you have your sort of electric electric techno song. Uh, you got your love ballad. It, it, it's very specific, and even the names of the characters are pastiches too. That comes from a very strong tradition in theater from restoration comedy, where the, the character's name tells you something about the character. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, examples from restoration comedy, Sir Simon Softhead, Sir Jasper Fidget, <laughs> Mr. Trickmore, Mr. Quack, the doctor, Alderman Gripe, or Sir Oliver Cockwood. You know, they all tell you something about the characters. And here in Starlight, you've got Rusty, the steam engine. That tells you something about his character. Greaseball, the diesel engine. So that tells you that he's, that tells you something about his character. Electra, the electric train. Dinah, the dining car. Buffy, Buffy, the buffet car. Pearl, the first class girl. Or duvet, the sleeper car. You know, it, it goes on and on. You know, uh-huh. it, they had a lot of fun with naming right. these these trains. Right. It's this is kind of broad comedy, not sort of subtle. Yeah. It's not subtle. Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. And and kind of designed for. Is it? It's not a children's show, but there is. I guess maybe kind of like cats. There's a there's a little Family. bit of a juve. Yeah. 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 Sort of a. 
Yeah. I mean, I think of Thomas the Tank Engine as being sort of, you know, kind of like, I suppose, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. It's a right. uh, kind of for children with a little bit of a wink and a nod for adults, too. Right? Yeah. It's yeah, kind of designed to work on two levels that way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the the songs are not subtle about their uh, sexing up the relationship. Sure. You sure. know, I'm just trying to look here for one of my examples of one of the songs where they well, I, I was whistled at me. If, but if you have a favorite song from Starlight Express, is there something that has stayed with you having seen it 300 plus times that runs uh, through your mind? Or when you think about Starlight Express, uh, this particular melody comes back or anything like that? I think uh, I think the song Starlight Express. Mm-hmm. OK, song. partly not only because it is a beautiful ballad, but. Also, because there is a kind of spiritual element in there, Starlight. It's like he's talking about talking about a divine character. Starlight Express, are you real? Yes or no? Starlight Express, answer me. Yes, I don't want you to go. It's kind mm. of a striving for for something other. Now, then, the, the the song goes into only you have the power within you. Just believe in yourself. So it kind of the starlight express turns out to be not other or it could be other it could be you know the the power we have inside ourselves divine power Uh that we get from god to to make the right choices in our lives or to have belief in ourselves but you were looking too for the starlight express did you have much success yes i found him okay now I'm brave enough to say only you. You are the starlight. Have the power to move me. You won the race. I did. And together we'll make the whole world move. concept of Starlight Express is sort of the the yearning for something magical, something mystical, coming kind of out of a dream and then discovering, oh, I've got I've got that thing. I've got yeah. that thing inside of me. Yeah. 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 God is inside all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I'm able yeah. to access that thing. Yeah. Turns out turns out that the real magic was the friends we made along the way. I made a little bit of that kind of that sort of turnaround. But yeah. 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 And am I right thinking that Trevor Nunn was also the director of Les Mis or have I got this wrong now? He was uh, co-director of Les Mis. So, but he did direct Tri- Sunset, I think, didn't he? And yes. Starlight and Express. Yeah. So I just going back, uh, Ian, to on Broadway, Starlight Express and Les Mis opening at the same time. Oh, um, yes. 
isn't that interesting that Trevor Nunn had two huge and expensive shows? And him coming from the Royal Shakespeare Company is kind of fascinating, too, that he ventured into musical theater with Cats and with Starlight Express and with, with Les Mis. Just interesting to note. That's the sort of career I would love to have as a director. <laughs> Somebody who loves both Shakespeare and musicals. <laughs> sure, sure. And it all worked. Wow. Well, I and it's never been filmed, Starlight Express. There's not a film version. Because no. I guess the the kinesthetic experience of seeing these actors on the stage, and not just on the stage, as you say, but all around, all the, around the theater, all around the house, including the balcony and that sort of thing. I guess the only thing I've ever seen that comes close to that is the uh, Spider-Man, the musical, which we saw on Broadway. Spider-Man, a, turn off, turn off the dark, turn off. Yeah. yeah the that, YouTube music. That notorious, uh, that notorious experience. It was, uh, it was a yawn, but that's a, uh, that's another show. Well, and I think also a show that sent more actors to the emergency room than a lot of other shows had done. <laughs> not a, yeah. not a safe experience for performers. And not to do, uh, were there accidents that you saw? And not just to get into the gruesome thing when you were in the theater with the actors. Yeah. I mean, they, it was not uncommon for somebody to twist their ankle to the timing of the set because the they had a they had a bridge that came down from the flies and turned around and that changed the angle of the the uh, the racetrack the timing of that was so specific that if they missed it by, you know, a second, they could fall off the track down, you know, 12 feet down to the stage below. Yeah. Um, uh, they did end up uh, putting like crew members there to give an okay. And if they didn't quite make it in time, it would stop. And, you know, most of the audience wouldn't know what the race was meant to look like, but, those of us that were there every every night, we knew that right. it had gone wrong. <laughs> yeah. You could catch the subtleties, but I think they, you know, they have like four races during the show, mm. and that's just something you don't see in a theater: is having people racing around, literally yeah. around <laughs> you. And there's always something exciting about watching a race. Yeah. I mean, sure, we all love watching. Or maybe we don't all love, but many of us enjoy watching the Olympics. Or sure, you know. Well, yeah, the, the suspense rooting of that. for your favorites and who's yeah. going to win is is the underdog going to get there? And in terms of spirit, spiritual input, there's also that connection to running the race. Sure, running with uh, patience uh, the race that is set before us. Yeah, looking yeah. to Jesus, the pioneer and destination of our faith. You know, I mean, there's uh, it's become. I guess in Chariots of Fire that was played up mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. um, that running thing is the metaphor of race and Christian life or the spiritual life, the more about perseverance and about competition, I think, yeah. about mm -hmm. the, the we're in for the long haul, as Archbishop Robert Runcie used to say, the, the church is in for the long haul, just like in a marathon, yeah. we're in for the long haul. Um, yeah. That, and that and running the race with with um, integrity. You know, Rusty, yeah. the the steam train, he does it by playing by the rules. And like Greaseball, who plays dirty tricks on him, or Electra, who plays electric tricks on him, you know, mm -hmm. uh, or CB the caboose uh, is kind of a traitor and helps helps Rusty to lose a race, you know, mm -hmm. by 
dragging him backwards. So, you know, Rusty manages to win in the end by holding true to his beliefs that uh, to do it the right way. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just to overlay on that, the famous quote from or the quote made famous, probably from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. about uh, the trajectory of justice is long and uh, the, uh, bends toward the arc of the moral uh, universe is long, history. but yeah, bends bends justice. justice and thinking about the debates within the Anglican communion, which I know you got a bit caught up in Ian, as I certainly did. And Nathan did as well around the place of gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual people in the life of the church was really a kind of time where you had to, had to have your view on the long term as opposed to the short term, because the short term was difficult and painful and conflictual. Um, and, you know, I, I have enormous admiration for those folks who, uh, including our bishop here, Michael Lingham, who was just so very, very, very clear about what was just and what was right and what would be good for the church and, and not for the church as an institution so much as for the proclamation of the gospel to all people. So yeah, that kind of long race as well that that we experienced uh in our lifetimes in in the history of the church and then i guess the the final song of the the show there's a light at the end of the tunnel uh is a conversion experience Uh, it also sort of follows in a, a long tradition of of great songs ending on a message of hope sure that uh you know, in Carousel, you'll never walk alone, or you know, the sound of music, climb every mountain. There's something. Yeah, this before. is the hymn at the end of the. Yeah, at the end of yeah. the. Yeah, this is a big, but this is a big gospel, yeah. upbeat number, which you know people people love. Um, but it's a it's Greaseball, the 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 dirty trickster. He goes, "I'm washed up, I'm finished, but gee, I don't know how to tell it." And the girl says, "Come on, Greaseball, you can spell it." Greaseball, okay, Dinah, I'm S-O-R-R-R-Y, which is a reference to the one of the songs, U-N-C-O-U-P-L-E-D, Uncoupled, mm-hmm. which is a pastiche on the, the Tammy Wynette song, sure. Divorce. Anyway, and then Papa, the Papa goes, you could be converted. Greaseball goes, what do you mean? Rebuilt with a new and better form of power. Greaseball, you think I could be converted to steam? Sure could. And with steam, you'd be under your own control. Diesel is for unbelievers. Electricity is wrong. (laughs) Steam has got the power that will pull us along. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. The inside might be as black as the night, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You could be converted. What do you mean? Rebuilt. With a new and better form of power You mean I could be converted to steam Sure could And with steam You'd be on the own Control Engines must obey control Engines must obey control Do what you're told Shame control Diesel is for Unbelievers, electricity is wrong. Steam has got the power that will pull us along. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. 
at the end of the tunnel, there's a light. You know, that'll preach, won't it? Really? You know? Yeah. There are dark days ahead when the power goes dead, when the oil runs dry. What can we try? We could use the sunlight, but it don't shine at night. Nuclear fission is nasty emissions. Soon the pistons <laughs> will be humming. Steam will have a second coming. This is about an energy crisis. <laughs> Steam will have a second coming. Gosh, we uh, get the what an interesting. Perusia, I yeah. was going to say what an interesting little prophecy. I'm well. I mean, and here we are. You know, with sanctions against Russia and concerns about where we're going to get our oil from. I mean, all right. There's a light at the end of the tunnel, maybe. Yeah. Well, that are living gosh. through steam. Steam, starlight. I guess there could we could talk forever about starlight, but should we turn our gaze to sunset? a musical that doesn't that doesn't end as happily with a with a note of hope, <laughs> rather with a, with a note of horror? <laughs> so we're in 1993 now. Uh, sunset Boulevard, based on the 1950s film of the uh, same title. Uh, again, Andrew Lloyd Webber. Lyrics and book by Don Black and Christopher Hampton. Christopher Hampton, famously known for Dangerous Liaisons and um, uh, script. And uh, but this was one of his few ventures into musical theater. And Don Black, famously known for Born Free, right? The Lion movie. The Lion movie. Well, the song yeah. from the Lion movie, yeah. The song from the Lion movie, yeah. But yeah. Born Free was the name of the Lion movie as well. Was and, the name uh, of the Lion movie, yes, indeed. Yeah. yeah. And uh, apparently the f- 1950s film is uh, Donald Trump's favorite movie. Is it really? It oh. is. And at the White House and now at Mar-a-Lago in Florida... He has a screening room, of course. Uh-huh. And when he gets, you know, guests there and they've all had something to drink since Donald Coke, uh, Donald Trump only drinks Diet Coke or whatever and can persuade them as the moment's just right. This is the best film of all time. This is tremendous. Come down. And you think about him now living yeah. increasingly in isolation in this grand, I guess, kitschy mansion oh my uh, gosh this chills up my else. spine i yeah. am i am big it's the politics that got small <laughs> <laughs> i i feel like i understand donald trump in a whole different way when i think about him as a norma desmond uh-huh huh I also I'm a chagr- I'm chagrined to know that one of my favorite movies is also Donald Trump's favorite movies. Because <laughs> I, 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 I would call, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite movie of all time, but Sunset Boulevard is among my favorite movies of all time. I really mm. love that film. It's a film that I uh, I truly, truly love. Mostly, I mean, the Hollywood thing. What is it about? I think it's a variety. Yeah, I mean, some of it's the 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 noir camp quality. I mean, some of it is Gloria Swanson. I just think she is magnificent in that film. And I mean, so many ways, like for me, sort of defines camp in in the in the in the best way, right? Like it's it's a uh, almost a sort of loving horror filled (laughs) homage to a certain way of being a being a diva. Uh, And I and I think the film, you know, the the script by Billy Wilder is is very good. I just think it's a really well well done film. And some of it is the kind of the 50s Hollywood. I mean, it's such an insider Hollywood film, right? About the movie making business and the the magic of movies and, you know, the, all those people out there in the dark. Um, yeah, for all kinds of reasons. And, you know, and it's, it's a film that I've loved. So I watched when I was a kid. I've loved it. So I have an affectionate relationship with it because it's kind of followed me through through my life. And, and apparently a, Donald, a Donald Trump and I share that. 
It's a yeah. great diva vehicle. Yeah, it it one one of the kind of quintessential diva vehicles, I think. Um, and as we've talked about before, Peter, you know how much I love a diva vehicle. I know how much you love a diva vehicle. Yeah. And in some ways, around Sunset Boulevard, before we get into the plot, the production history. I mean, it ran uh, uh, fifteen hundred uh, performances on Broadway. It won the Tony Awards. Uh, New York Times theater critic Vincent Camby uh, famously said, "Awards don't really tell you much about." tell you much when the competition is feeble or simply non-existent as was the case the year that Sunset Boulevard won its Tony. So uh, critically not all that well received. One of the most expensive shows in terms of its set. I don't know, Ian, did you see the original set, which with that like, staircase. cinematic effects and the staircase yeah. and all that sort oh, of yes. thing. I got a story um, about that. <laughs> well, go ahead. Yeah. Tell us a story about the, because well, it's mean, an extraordinary set. It is an extraordinary set. Uh, it's a huge staircase uh-huh. and it takes Norma Desmond probably at least 20 seconds to make her way down the staircase. Talk about an entrance. Yeah. Every <laughs> single time she comes on stage, <laughs> but the, the, but it also, it, the whole thing lifted up and it mm. turned around and it was in the early days of electronic triggering of these things rather than manual shifting of the machinery. And the uh, there's a quote here, the mansion turned out to be a bigger diva than Norma Desmond. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Lupone, Patty Lupone, who originated the role in London, was furious about all of this. Oh, I bet. Uh, during the tech rehearsals, it would suddenly start to fly in or fly out without any warning. <laughs> oh my gosh. And sometimes with cast members on it who are absolutely terrified at this of big course. thing going up or coming down. Yeah. And the problem it turned out was that the radio frequencies they used to operate the set were the same that the taxi cab dispatchers <laughs> used outside. So there's a quote here from Patty Lepone. Uh, she said, anybody passing by the Adelphi could give me a thrill ride just by picking up the phone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Yeah, you don't uh, you don't mess with Patty when she's in her diva mode. That's <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, your no, no. And if you saw the show live, what a what an experience it must have been. Yeah, I saw it. I actually saw it four times because I was working in a box office in the West and I got free tickets to lots of shows. So I got mm-hmm. to see each of the four. Uh, Norma Desmond's that performed in London. Oh, so who did you see? So Patty originated it in London, and then so who the, else? There was Patty Lapone, there was uh-huh. Betty Buckley, there was Elaine Page, uh-huh. and there was Petula Clark. Oh, Petula Clark, how interesting. Oh, and uh, we affectionately uh, called the four of them Pat, Bet, Pet, and Potato Head. Potato Head was a nickname for Elaine Page. <laughs> oh, poor Elaine Page. <laughs> she wasn't that well liked, unfortunately. Yeah, well. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but of those four, I actually think Betty Buckley did the the best job uh-huh. uh, of creating Norman. Yeah, Desmond. she's she's kind of the, I feel like she's the that's the actress I think of when I think of I mean, I, I know that it was Patty was the, sort of the originator of it. But I feel like Betty Buckley has kind of that's sort of her one of her signature roles, I would. I yeah, think. yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously in the U.S., Glenn Close. Glenn Close. The, yeah. And there's lots of gossip and scandal about how that yeah, they, had to, they had to re, rescore a bunch of a bunch of isn't it only Betty and Patty sing? 
what, what I, I don't remember if it's if it's the first act Norma song or the second act Norma song, but they they reorchestrated it for just about every actress other than Patty and Betty. They, they sing it in the original yeah. key, but they yeah. reorchestrated it for Glenn and just about every other actor who has played Norma sings Glenn's keys, not Patty and Betty's keys. Apparently there's yeah. some there's gossip about that. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I think uh, I think why Betty Buckley is so successful is that Glenn Close is an amazing actor. She's a good singer. She's not a great singer. Yeah. Paddy Lepone is Paddy Lepone. I know that uh, she's a favorite of many people. I don't, I find her a little mannered, which in the role of Norma Desmond is perfect. Kind of works. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Betty Buckley is both a strong actor and a strong singer. And yeah. so her performance actually just took, took the, the whole thing to another level, which I was, uh, very excited to see. Yeah, listening listening to her sing those. I mean, I I watched a, a crap as we, as we talked about. You know, some somebody with a bad camera in a backpack videoing from the balcony. That's the version of Betty Buckley in that role I've seen. But even still, her performance comes through and the graininess and the horrible sound quality. Listening to her sing with one look, you you do get a sense of why this character was a star, which is what you get when Gloria Swanson is like in the film, right? Like, cause she, so for so much of the film, she's, she's Gloria Swanson. She was a 20s silent movie star and Betty captures some of that. Just the, the kind of the raw charisma of a, of a face that people will line up around the block to see. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. She, she, for me anyway, she, she, she has that, that star quality. That's un, un, unbelievable. With one look, really one of the is one of the great songs and- well it, yeah I, in, in some way I, I think there's two there's two ways in which i don't know that i would say the musical improves on the film but really does what i think a musical can do that a film can't do and it's those it's it's enormous two numbers with one look and um the one and the as one where she re- never said goodbye as if we never said goodbye right which are both yeah. great moments in the film but they're film moments right there and 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 the, what the musical does is expands those moments out and gives it a song it lets norma sing and i feel like that's that's what a musical can do that a film can't do right like explore the psychology in music in that moment i mean you know when the emotion is so high that the only option is for the character to burst into song and yeah. those are the those are the two moments where i think yep that's that's a that's the reason why you turn something like Sunset Boulevard into the musical. The rest of the musical, I can kind of like all the scenes between Joe and Betty writing the screen, all the kind of the, the love subplot there. I don't, I don't, I'm not. I feel like Sunset Boulevard as a musical loses something when Norma's not on stage. You know, like I feel like that's the her her moments to me feel like the most successful, just because they are so heightened in that in that way that only a musical can musical or an opera can give you that sense of of scale and drama and majesty and just raw yeah kind of <laughs> I, when when the show was being written the the staff at really useful in London were calling Norma the female phantom yeah oh it's, yeah it's, it's a role that has that kind of uh, mm-hmm. that kind of yeah. 
Yeah, it's and a I star think vehicle. Think yeah. It's interesting that it's a very faithful adaptation from the movie. Yeah. Uh, it keeps very close to to the screenplay. Yeah. To the script. Fact, most and, of the uh, most of the best lines in the musical are lifted right out of the Billy Wilder screenplay, I think. Yeah. Um Billy Wilder, uh they they how Andrew Lloyd Webber works his shows is he he kind of does a a showcase production at his stately home in Sidmonton. It's called Sidmonton. And he does like a, a, a theater festival there every summer where he showcases the new work. And they they videoed it and they took the video to LA to show Billy Wilder. And um, this, is, this is what Billy Wilder said. I congratulate Don Black and Christopher Hampton on something ingenious. They left the story alone. That's already mm-hmm. a very ingenious idea. I was very much astonished when I heard the words, many of them retained and some of them to music. <laughs> um, yeah. What's interesting, I think, though, is that the original movie is a very uh, satiric, biting attack on Hollywood. Yeah. Whereas when you add the music, it it actually becomes more of a a, a romance. Yeah. No, I think that's Hollywood right. and, and Lloyd Webber's always had this fascination with with old time Hollywood. Mm-hmm. You know, he he's. His next musical after this was Whistle Down the Wind, which is again based on a on a on a movie. He's already had, had, had a fascination Mills. with the, this this age old, uh, you know, time gone by. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, that and I also think that Sunset, I kind of see Sunset as kind of the sunset of his writing career because nothing he's written since then yeah. has really had much impact. And I also think there's something about this score. I don't know whether it's because the the book was so strong, but there was a confidence to his musical writing here that I hadn't heard. There's there's not really the pastiche stuff that you've heard in many of the other shows. This of all of his shows, I think is the most successful in terms of creating a new a new musical. Hmm. It's not reliant on any other music to 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 tell the story it's the it's the book that is driving this forward mm-hmm. and this comes right after phantom as i recall and um well right after uh, aspects of love aspects. i think which we haven't aspects we haven't really love, talked okay. about on this on this podcast yeah. but yeah but um, which was kind of a phantom. it was kind of a it was sort of a big flop wasn't it i mean i think my my sense of sunset boulevard was that they he really needed to make money with Sunset yeah. Boulevard, really, really useful group. It had some kind of, you know, they, he'd, he'd bought out all the shares, gotten gotten rid of the board and then had to sell it to a German company. There was there was a, there's a lot of there's a whole backstory here about his financial machinations and setting yeah. up this corporation. But my, my sense is Sunset Boulevard needed to be a moneymaker. And actually, I, I don't think particularly was. I think it lost it a know. lot no. of money. Well, Patty Lapone was promised Broadway and didn't get it and sued for a million dollars and got it got the million dollars and get the part. It's maybe just as well. Um, lots of drama in Los Angeles between Glenn Close and Faye Dunaway in the part and uh, on it goes. Certainly in, in the Canadian theater experience, it was Diane Carroll who mm-hmm. uh, played Norma Desmond in Toronto and Vancouver in Garth Drabinsky Productions. And I, a friend of mine was on the board of the Performing Arts Center uh, which the Drabinsky Theater was um, was called in Vancouver. It's now a church, interestingly. Mm. That's a whole other story, but it houses a church, I should say. But my friend said, it's amazing to see how a business can be primed so that it actually loses money. 
And it had to do with the crazy accounting that later landed Garth Trubinsky in jail for. It was more important that it lose money than make money. So Mm -hmm. there's an interesting production history here as well. But it it's kind of about a dying Hollywood. It's sort of about a decaying um, world, uh, uh, which makes the Donald Trump uh, mm-hmm. uh, connection interesting. But just to your point, Ian, it being sort of the the sunset mm-hmm. of a certain part of Andrew Lloyd Webber's career. I mean, he had kind of a revival with School of Rock and and the sequel to Phantom uh, and now the Cinderella show and so forth, but nothing I don't think matches the score as you were saying, or the, the quality of the songs. I mean, there's not a, there's not a diva show that happens, not an Andrew Lloyd Webber perspective where you don't get at least one of with one look or if, as if we never said goodbye, because these are, I think these are two great songs in the musical theater repertoire. I don't know why I'm frightened I know my way around here The cardboard trees, the painted seas, the sound here Yes, a world to rediscover
great romantic soaring melody. I mean, it's, and, and I don't know, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> there, there's a lot of Puccini in this score, right? I mean, it is sort of Andrew Lloyd Webber at his most sort of romantic, uh, lifty best. And I think your point, Ian, there, I, my sense is that is kind of the, that's really where that bit of Andrew Lloyd Webber kind of ends. I, I, I don't think his subsequent stuff has had that same kind of phantom cats lifted exalt. It's really not the kind of blockbuster quality that he's kind of kind of known for. And some of that I think is, you know, like the, the world of the theater kind of moved on from the big British import blockbuster musicals. I mean, we, we, we kind of moved into different, I mean, at one level, I suppose, just because they're so expensive to mount. I mean, that is such a, that is such an expensive show. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess now, you know, Steph, uh, Stephanie J. Block is uh, in the Kennedy Center seeing if there's still life in Sunset Boulevard in a slightly slimmed down production. So we'll see, right, if there's a, if there's a life in this thing still. But my, my sense is, yeah, Sunset Boulevard is both a, what a love letter to a dying Hollywood, but in some ways sort of musically a love letter to a dying West End or a dying Broadway, a way of doing mm-hmm. musicals that, you know, hasn't hasn't really gone forward. I suppose we don't really do big blockbuster shows in that in that particular way. In the, I mean, in the way that sort of Les Mis and Andrew Lloyd Webber were such a hallmark of the '80s and the '90s. Yeah, I mean, it isn't too long after uh, Sunset Boulevard that Rent ends up on right in Broadway, which is a whole yeah a whole different a way whole of new thing, sort of harking back to hair in some ways, but also creating a very different musical vocabulary. Yeah, different aesthetic. and using. Using rock and roll music, which uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber has always kind of been uh, the the rock musical, whatever the hell that means, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, to your point, Nathan, kind of gets more or less abandoned in Sunset Boulevard. The score is much more, much more operatic, I yeah. think, growing out of, Phantom out of Phantom and that experience. And I've often wondered uh, autobiographically, not that it's any of my business, whether the figure of Norma Desmond became powerful for Andrew Lloyd Webber with the demise of his relationship with Sarah Brightman, like Mm. was a sort of uh, star. I won't say that Sarah Brightman kind of became a Norma Desmond figure. uh, Oh, you think he thinks he's Joe Gillis to, to Sarah Brightman's (laughs) Norma Desmond? I would say the opposite. I mean, I I have no idea, but I wonder if if he, you know, he's sort of the, I mean, I guess I don't, this is, this is completely unfair as you say, because who knows, but autobiographically, I feel like there is a sort of fixation that Andrew Lloyd Webber has with like the phantom character, right? The, the ugly misunderstood genius. And and, and to Ian's point, if there's a phantom in Sunset Boulevard, it's Norma Desmond, right? The kind of the misunderstood, literally, I mean, I think wearing various masks, right? When she ever, she has her, like her makeup and her kind of her, you know, her facelift kind of stuff on. I mean, she's, and, you know, always made up for the cameras, always has her face on, except for the moments where we, we see her kind of unvarnished. I mean, that to me feels like the Andrew Lloyd Webber avatar in this thing. So if there's an autobiographical thing, I, I wonder if it's, you know, having broken up with Sarah, Sarah Brightman, who I think was, a, you know, 10 years younger than he was, or maybe more than that, kind of thinking about, I mean, I, I guess there's a long way of saying so much of the love relationships in Sunset Boulevard feel to me really about age difference. Right. Betty is 22. Joe is, I'm guessing, 35, mid 30s. Norma's 50. Um, so there is a love triangle in this thing, but it's in so much, in so much, so many ways, it's about, yeah, well, I suppose about women and and aging, you know, like what it's, what it, you know, Joe, Joe can be in, in two, you know, he can have both relationships, right? As a 35 year old, he can be in a relationship with a 22 year old, he can be in a relationship with a 50 year old. But that age gap, I feel like, is so. I feel like a lot of Sunset Boulevard is about um, the challenges of being in multi-generational intimate relationships, uh, whether or not that works. It's interesting that this triangular relationship 
thing is something we see in a lot of other Android Weber shows in traditional Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals or other musicals. It's always pairings. Yeah. Right. Two know, couples. Two pairs, a, a main plot and a subplot. Mm-hmm. But in Android Weber, there are a lot of threesomes. A lot of triangles. And here it's Norma, Joe, and Betty. And in Jesus Christ Scoop Stars, Judas, Jesus, mm-hmm. and Mary Magdalene. And Evita, it's Perron, Ava, and Che. In Phantom, it's yeah. fan, the Phantom, Christine, and, and Raul. Raul. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in aspects of love, it's Alex, Rose, and George. It, it, it it's something that he's obviously uh, yeah. There's something in. about the love triangle that he finds really interesting. Yeah, or comes from personal experience. I don't who, know. who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who unfair, knows? <laughs> unfair, unfair to speculate. But yeah, there does yeah. seem to be a through line here. Um, yeah, and, I mean, dramatically, love triangles are fascinating, right? Like, I mean, that I feel like dramatically, that's a really interesting way to tell a story. So it works. But yeah, you wonder kind of what is it about this guy that that finds that particular way of telling a story. And I th- in this musical, uh, I think Andrew Lloyd Webber's music also has uh, a distinction between those three things. There are three very distinct uh, sounds musical in it, yeah. sounds in this. There's the the lush romanticism of, of Norma. And the music for Joe is, if you look at it, it's... All, all very aggressive, punchy, mm-hmm. short phrases. Uh, it's discordant. And that kind of represents the the uncertainty, the hardness of his life and struggling. And when you look at all of the other characters, that's where you get more of the, you know, the the the, the movie, the Hollywood set, mm-hmm. the Bettys. Kind of a Hardys. jazzy score, yeah. Uh-huh. It's jazzy, it's bright dance rhythms, there's mm-hmm. swing band orchestrations. There's a, a song in this, every movie's a circus. And mm-hmm. I can hear echoes of the circus song in Evita there, or yeah. the brothers in Joseph. There. Yeah. It's got that same kind of sense. And, and even the... The duet that Joe has with Betty is kind of more along the lines of an old-fashioned traditional Broadway ballad mm-hmm. duet. I thought I had everything I needed. My life was set. My dreams were in place. My heart could see into the It's really interesting that this this jagged, splintered music that that uh, Joe sings in the song Sunset Boulevard, which opens mm-hmm. Act Two, is particularly noticeable. And musically, it's a very interesting choice in that it's been done in the time signature of 5-8, rather than your usual 4-4 four, four, quarter time or your 3-4, your 6-8. It's 5-8. So that gives you a sense of just this, it doesn't quite fit, mm-hmm. you know. We were used to 
one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. But this is one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, one. It's just yeah. something There's a herky jerkiness to it. There's a little bit of a sense of an anticipation, like we're missing a beat, almost like he can't quite catch, catch his breath. Yeah, it really does do something interesting dramatically for that the character. Thoughts, the thoughts aren't they're fitting all kind into of, the phrase. Yeah, they're all kind of jumbling um, together in a really interesting way. Don Black talked about that. You know, Lloyd Webber kept writing this strange, jagged, splintered music. And how do we get words on these? notes because nothing seemed to have a rhyming pattern mm. and it worked funnily enough because we wrote something that didn't really rhyme but was an emotional outpouring sure i came out here to make my name wanted my pool my dose of fame wanted my parking space in waters but after a year a one-room hell a murphy bed a rancid smell wallpaper peeling at the corner Sunset Boulevard, Twisting Boulevard, secretive and rich, a little scary. Sunset Boulevard, Tempting Boulevard, waiting there to swallow the unwary. Dreams are not enough to win a war, out here they're always keeping score beneath a tan the battle rages. Smile or rinse and smile, fill someone's glass, kiss someone's wife, kiss someone's ass. We do whatever pays the wages. Sunset Boulevard, Headline Boulevard, getting here is only the beginning. Sunset Boulevard, Jackpot Boulevard, once you've won you have to go on winning. I want to uh, just look at some of go through Sunset Boulevard, the song, the song, because it actually gives you a through line for the whole musical in that one song. And I'm just going to pick out the bits where it goes, Sunset Boulevard. It describes the boulevard in different ways. The first time it's Sunset Boulevard, Twisting Boulevard. Then it's Sunset Boulevard, Tempting Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, Headline Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, Jackpot Boulevard. Sunset Boulevard, Frenzied Boulevard. Then we have Brutal Boulevard, Ruthless Boulevard, and Lethal Boulevard. So if you look at Joe's trajectory through the play, the Twisting Boulevard, he's on the, the car race. Uh, he's racing away. He's twisting around and he ends up at Norma's place. Tempting Boulevard, he's in this big mansion with this movie star. That's very tempting. Headline Boulevard. You know, he's hit the big time here. Jackpot Boulevard. He's got this job being paid $500 a, a week, which in the in that time was a huge amount of money to, to work on Norma's crazy script. Then it becomes Frenzied Boulevard and a brutal boulevard as, as Norma gets her hooks into him and won't let him leave and, and you know, emotionally blackmails him with her cutting her own wrists mm -hmm. to bring him back. Ruthless Boulevard, Joe has become ruthless by the end. And then finally, Lethal Boulevard. Right, which of course it is. Yeah. So yeah. as a song, I think this is actually an extraordinarily well-crafted piece because you get the whole musical in this one song, mm -hmm. which uh, I don't often see that level of detail and uh, cleverness in, in Lloyd Webber's uh, music and lyrics, but I th think it's very, very successful here. Yeah. 
Yeah, there are there are some there are some really well. I, in in general, I don't love the score to Sunset Boulevard, but I, I, I as as you're as you're helping us appreciate it more. I mean, there is there is there is a, a great deal of craft I think going into this mm-hmm. piece in terms of how we want to tell the story and how and more to the point, how we can use music to do things that film can't do, right? Which is which is the excuse for turning a masterpiece like the film of Sunset Boulevard into a musical. Um, you have yeah. to you have to be able to do something with this material that the film itself you know can't do. And I and I think you're illustrating beautifully what a musical can what a musical can do. Um, that's different than what a film can do. Yeah. yeah, and I think the final moment where we see uh, Norma Desmond. Yeah, her breakdown in in her close up. You yeah. know, in the movie, it's kind of creepy and horrifying. Mm-hmm. She kind of walks but, into the camera, but yeah. But with in the musical, uh, with that lush orchestration, you actually feel a sense of uh, empathy for for Norma, and you feel sorry for her, even though she's. <laughs> Obviously crazy. Yeah. But but there's something about the way the music and the musical has that power over our emotions mm-hmm. that can help to shift that moment for us. Yeah, it is. I mean, I I, th- I think the, the tone of the of the musical is very is is different than the movie in that sense. It it loses a little bit of the kind of bitter ironic. I mean, Hollywood is just a, you know, as, as you say, that it's sort of a takedown of the Hollywood studio system, the film is. And the musical is a kind of uh, romantic, kind of re-enchants, if you like. We might say the magic of the movies or the magic of uh, the magic of, of storytelling, um, being in a dark, I mean, you know, she, and this is lifted from the film, but you know, all the, all the people out there in the dark. But of course, in the context of the musical, we're in a theater, right? We are literally in the dark watching her. So there is an intimacy, I think, between Norma and her audience I, I guess you get that if you're in a theater full of people watching Gloria Swanson on on film, but when it's a live actor in front of you talking to, I mean, literally talking to the audience, right? Like you, and it's, and you know, especially when it's Betty Buckley or Patti Lapone or Glenn Close or, you know, some great diva, we've all come to see you in this thing, which is exactly what Norma, right? That's her fantasy is that they're all going to come to see me. My, you know, with one look, I can break your heart with one look, you know, like it's, it is the, it is the song of the diva. Um, and there is a, there is, there is a, an immediacy to experiencing that with a live a live body in the theater, as you say, to such soaring music. I mean, you can't help but be moved by the power of what Norma can do, and that's a little different than the story that I think Billy Wilder is telling in the film, which is a little bit, mm-hmm. as, you know, not making fun of, but certainly there's not a lot of sim- Norma is a horror character in the film, mm-hmm. right? Like there's there's mm-hmm. nothing particularly sympathetic about the way the character is written. Andrew Lloyd Webber, I think, has a more than a soft spot. I think he's a little bit in love with Norma Desmond. In the way that I think, you know, the 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 musical, maybe the film invites us to think about, is Joe a little bit in love with Norma too, right? I mean, at, at one level, he's, you know, he's he's figured out a great financial gig. You know, she's paying all his bills and the lady's paying, right? Like, I mean, he's got a whole new wardrobe. She loves flan a lot of man. That's my favorite line in the whole musical. <laughs> and Patty does it brilliantly. I love flan a lot of man. This will complement his tan. We'll take two of these and four of them. I'm still your greatest fan. Very soon now we'll have stopped him looking like an also ran. You're going to make me sorry that I'm staying. Well, all right, I'll choose after all I'm paying. Evening clothes. I want to see he is, if not in love with her, at least uh, in, in, in thrall to her in a really interesting way. She has power over him. And it's not, and it's not just financial power. There, there seems to be some kind of hold, some kind of obsession that he um, develops for her, healthy well, or unhealthy. Yeah, and as we talk about the, the, the shift from a film to a musical and the sustaining of emotion that can happen through a song in a musical, where it's only a clip, 
I, I began thinking about, Nathan, you and I have talked about this uh, uh, so many times, the connection between musical theater and liturgy. Mm-hmm. And whereas, you know, if you're telling the story of the gospel, it's kind of staccato. You get the, you get the, you get the story, you get the ideas, you get the narrative. You put that in the midst of liturgy where you can sustain a moment with song and feel the depth of it because music sort of slows everything down. Mm-hmm. So, and also gives, you know, the, in, in the example of, of, of liturgy and in, in, in church, the opportunity for everybody, you don't get to sing along with a musical unless it's a sing along sound of music, but in, in, in a liturgy, the, the congregation singing together, holding these these moments of spiritual significance of uh, uh, the the drama of the narrative and so forth creates a very different and I think deeper experience for congregation slash audience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it, I mean I, I'm thinking about with one look, right? Which is I mean it's sort of Norma's. I guess it's Norma's I want song if we're looking structurally, although it comes a little bit a little bit late in the you know it, uh, the the song is about the power of a silent film actress right with one look i can break your heart she's she's you know the, the, the talkies ruined the talkies ruined the movies that's kind of her her operating thesis right like i don't need dialogue i can i can do all of this with my face but as you say that the song is really about i think the power of um it's not with one look it's like with one note right like mm. this is about this mm. is about what uh what Betty Buckley can do that Gloria Swanson, because she's in a film, can't do with one with one note. And it's and it's that high note at the end of the song. Right. With one look, I'll be me when she I mean, she, she's at the top of her range. She's belting an, an, on an eval. It's astounding. And with that note, she can break my heart. Right. Like that is what Betty Buckley can do. Uh, she doesn't need a script, I suppose, in that sense. All, all she needs is a banging song. Um, and that's, you know, so th- there is a way in which I think we're layering onto the kind of the, the story about Hollywood and filmmaking, kind of a story about musicals in some ways, which, as you say, maybe is a story about liturgy. You know, I, 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 I'm I searching for theological resonance in Sunset Boulevard and not coming up with, <laughs> with very much. It's not it's not the, it's certainly not a, the most theological show that we've ever entertained here. Um, but there is I, I think it, it there is something about in the same way that music of the night is kind of a hymn to music. I think with one look is also a little bit of a it's it's about the power of of great singing, great performance. And there is something, I don't know, there's something very moving to me about about that moment. Lloyd Webber has in the past had a great affection for church music. And I think it's been an important part of his musical upbringing mm-hmm. for his annual Sidmonton Festival. He there's always a church service as part of the, the festival. Mm. And he always composes a new piece of music for those church services. He wrote that whole classical piece, The Requiem. The Requiem, yeah. The Requiem. And we do hear uh, a lot of that church music influence in, in his music. He even wrote a Benedicte for the service for his third marriage. And mm. we've just learned recently that he's going to be writing write for the coronation, for the coronation yeah. of King Charles. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, there's something about the divine mm-hmm. and Andrew Lloyd Webber that he connects with and uh, inspires him, obviously, whether I don't know if he's a man of faith, I I, I have no idea. I wouldn't want to presume, but yeah. uh, his there's something was that's inspiring organist. him. Yeah, his yeah. father was a church organist and, and he grew up um, in the smoky Anglo-Catholic uh, church of All Saints Margaret Street in, in London. So yeah, it's deep. 
somewhere between Anglican church music and Puccini, mm-hmm. you find the Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, musical vocabulary. It's kind of that all mixed together. And yeah. Hmm. Yeah, but there is a there is a sort of there is a kind of Anglo-Catholic quality to, to I mean, you know, there's it's it's high camp in the church key. And that's that's kind of what Sunset Boulevard is doing. It's high camp and the Hollywood musical key. Yeah. Some, something about the story. And, you know, like I, I, I remember once hearing an organist say yeah, to, to back to your kind of earlier point on, vo- on vocation, Ian, you know, God made me an organist because he couldn't save me through any other means but music. Um, I think there are a number of us who find our doorway back into church, maybe through the music. And through the experience that music can, uh, I mean, that might be our Starlight Express, right? It's the way that God can touch us, maybe in a more primal way when, you know, like when we, we've had to recontextualize and let go of a lot of ideas about God that we were taught as small children and maybe lose our faith at certain points, right? I think often music can touch something very primal um, where you might, you might discover that, you know, I don't know if I believe all of this anymore, but it still has power to m- move me when I hear a hymn that I loved as a child, or when I hear really soaring music that kind of takes me to a, to a different place. Um, and since the Boulevard is picking up on some of some, of, if I'm going to like really reach for a theological principle in this thing, <laughs> there is, there is something about the power of art and music. Um, as we say, who knows what Andrew Lloyd Webber believes religiously, but he certainly is a, a believer in the power of, of music. And that's that's next door, maybe, to the power of God. There's something holy about with one look, <laughs> maybe. Ian, I don't know what we would have done had we not had the opportunity to have a conversation with you for these two shows. And thank you for bringing your uh, experiences, your understanding of theater and music and, and your love of it all. Um, and your 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 faith as a, as a as a Christian man into into this conversation. What a joy! Yeah, oh, it's been a pleasure. It's been fun. It's great to talk to somebody who actually knows these shows because Peter and I don't know them all that well. So <laughs> thank you for uh, for introducing us to the world of Starlight Express and helping us <laughs> go a little bit deeper with Sunset. I uh, I'm so thankful. Well, thank you. Until next time. Until next time. Where. The Gospel of Musical Theatre is a production of Trinity Episcopal Cathedral in Portland, Oregon. Join Peter and Nathan every other Friday right here in your podcast feed and connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Gospel of MT. Learn more and support us at trinity-episcopal.org slash podcasts. See you next time.